This is the Mount Rushmore Podcast. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. And these guys argue, argue, argue about everything with each other, mostly the Mount Rushmore of any given topic. This week, the topic is bands that should have been bigger. I think we all understand what this topic is, and we probably all have an opinion on it. So let's just start with Michael's opinion on the first one. Okay. Uh, my, my first band is, um, I think they're kind of a third wheel and have always been a third wheel, which is the Kinks. Kinks too. Uh, you know me, Michael. You know me. I know. Listen, I'm I'm playing to the crowd. I'm playing to, to everyone at the table right now. He's pandering. Uh, um, okay, so the Kinks have always kind of been the third band in their like of amongst the other invasion. of the British invasion. Okay. Really? I thought they. Well, maybe. Well, listen. Or, well, or the Who? Well, it, who's more third wheelie? Well, them or the Who? You, I can get to my my point oh, before okay. you interrupt me again. Oh boy. Yeah. So at first it was the Beatles. They came over. Right. And the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Then here come the Kinks. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys. We're the Kinks. Then there was Led Zeppelin. Like, af- after, like, that sort of faded, after, like, the mm-hmm. 60s faded to the 70s. Right. Uh, like, the Who kind of transitioned also from the 60s to the 70s, and then Led Zeppelin. And the Kinks were always there, just kind of doing their own thing. Sure. But they're always kind of behind. They're always, like, that third band of the time. And uh, right. I think a lot of it came down to th- their ability to kind of get play in America. And in the, I think it was 64 or 65, they were traveling to the U S and they had like their work permits pulled. Yeah. Because, uh, Ray Davies and his brother used to just argue all the time. Uh, I guess that they've, I could just say full stop. <laughs> they used uh-huh. to argue all the time on stage and they play short sets. And so, the American um, Federation of Musicians uh, kind of got pissed off at their like their on stage tactics, the lack of work ethic, their lack wow. of work ethic. So basically, they were banned from playing in the United States for three or four years, and they, they only kind of played in England mm-hmm. and in Britain. And so, this is a band that probably, if they kind of continued on. I think could have rivaled the Beatles or I mean, that's, that's hard to say. No one mm-hmm. really rivals the Beatles. Mm-hmm. If, if there's one band that you could say couldn't have been bigger, it was maybe the Beatles. Right. Uh, maybe you two could, yeah. couldn't have been bigger. Like yeah. how do you Michael get Jackson? Yeah. Prime, yeah. There's a few that couldn't have, but like the kinks, I think were just so musically talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, their music was constantly changing and constantly interesting. Like, like the Beatles were like, they, evolved along with the sound and they evolved over the years. They didn't stay playing the same song over and over. So I don't know. I just thought, I thought they could have been so much bigger, but if not for like their own personality holding them back. Well, that, and I think the fact that as the music scene got to be heavier and like more hard rock oriented, like Mm -hmm. the late as the sixties or in the late sixties, early seventies, you started to get, like you said, Led Zeppelin and the who started doing like Tommy and who's next. Yeah. They 
went the opposite direction. I mean, they went from, you know, you really got me and all day and all the night, which were these two seminal, like blueprint type songs for hard rock, punk, whatever you want to paths you want to go do you down. Think, do you think they like, um, they were too concepty no, concepty, but also, you know, as they got Ray Davies moved along, you started to get more of those like English, like kind of music hall yeah, influences for every village green or water, uh, yeah, Waterloo, Waterloo sunset. sunset. You think of the Beatles doing things like Penny Lane or Lucy in the sky, these kind of pastoral songs that paint a picture that's emblematic of British culture and the, the kinks, I think, and Ray Davies always kind of did a little bit of a kind of a loving tribute to British culture, too. Mm. So, yeah, I could see how that didn't sell. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe I mean, as soon as when punk started building in like the, the disinfraction of like the youth there, you could I guess you could say, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you started to get like, well, like you mentioned uh, the Kings of the Village Green Preservation Society, which is an incredible album and kind of stiffed. It was like really not a big hit. It was like kind of the album that derailed them in England, at least in terms of being this super successful band. Of course, now you look back on it and all this, all these great songs that are on it, but it was sort of viewed as a commercial disappointment. And it's interesting about them is that they would kind of just when they would get written off commercially, they would do something like Lolo would come out Mm -hmm. or like in the late seventies, they they kind of changed their sound a little bit and got more punk influenced Mm -hmm. and new wave and started and had some hits. Yeah. You know what? I also recall like when come dancing came out in the mid eighties, suddenly kids are exposed to this older guy with slick back hair portraying this very different character, probably what his Ray Davies father would have been like in that. So I thought that was really interesting that they all, they kind of had a way to come back into the world. They put a parking lot on a piece of land where the supermarket used to stand. Before that, they put up a bowling alley on the site that used to be the local pally. That's where the big band used to come and play. My sister went there on a Saturday. Come dancing. All our five friends used to come and call. Why not come dancing? It's only natural. Yeah, there's a, like you said, Mike, about the, theatricality. I mean, they did a lot of like these concept albums, which are generally a path to losing your audience you're your, your, your big audience in a lot of ways but i can't wait for our concept podcast yeah <laughs> be crazy. Hopefully the concept this could, this, hopefully the well, concept is not sucking this yeah, time we'll, we'll lose both of our listeners <laughs> yeah this could be it all right richard what's your first one my first one is the replacements never heard of them yeah They're, have you heard of the other band that replaced them no oh, that's right yes um they are the quintessential i think example of a band that were their own worst enemy you know, they were started out in the early 80s in Minneapolis, kind of started off as a almost a hardcore play as fast as you can kind of punk mm-hmm. band. Only problem is, is Paul Westerberg, their lead singer and songwriter, was an incredibly gifted songwriter mm-hmm. and just really quickly grew past that. And so musically, they became, God, Westerberg can write a song. Take one step and miss the whole first run. Dreams are fulfilled. Glad to win. 
Yeah. The problem is like just personality wise, they never grew past those like kind of snot nosed punks, even though the songs they were writing were like these, you know, these incredible emotional, you know, could write a, an up-tempo power rock song like like Bastards of Young mm-hmm. or, you know, something like a ballad like Unsatisfied or something like that could just break your heart. But just they were trouble. Yeah. And they didn't really, not even didn't care about being becoming famous, but seemed to actively sabotage any efforts to make them more successful yeah. than they could have been. Was I mean, that the punk rock ethic? Or do you think the time being famous was a game that meant pandering to the record industry and MTV and all these things that you wouldn't want anyway. Well, I think they were just, I think they were just a group of contrarians. Yeah. They also couldn't show up sober to a show either. Yeah, I mean, you'd get this thing where if you, show, you saw a replacement show, is either they'd show up and they'd play a great set and then blow you away, or they would show up really drunk, usually if they were mad at the label about something, and stagger through a 45-minute set of, like, shitty Hank Williams covers. Yeah. They were on Saturday Night Live in 86, I think. 85, 86 is around the time Tim came out. Showed up drunk. Uh, were mouthing profanities as they were playing the whole time. Decided between songs to switch completely what clothes they were wearing. So everyone else came out in somebody <laughs> else's outfit. We're like staggering, run, like falling down into each other. And basically got banned from Saturday Night Live wow. for like a decade. I think wow. Westerberg came back like years later yeah. and did a solo thing. But, you know, they, they, they would tour with like R.E.M. Or especially like when Don't Tell a Soul came out, they toured with Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. And just basically mailed it in, tried to antagonize the crowd. The bigger the crowd was, the more they wanted to, like, stick it to them yeah. a little bit. And it's, I think it's just more con- being contrarian. You know, they didn't they didn't make music videos. Mm-hmm. The first music video they made was, made was for Bastards of Young. And the whole video is a close-up of a speaker, one speaker. As the song is playing, you see the speaker, like, vibrating along with it in the yeah. kid's foot. Yeah. That's the whole video. And it's just that idea of some bands are just allergic to success. Yeah. You know, they just, for whatever reason, and I don't think it's even a punk ethic. I think for them, it's just a really specific. Does it feel like that's not a should have been better? It's a couldn't have been bigger? I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe if they were more interested in being successful, maybe the songs wouldn't have been as good. You know, his last couple of replacements albums. I mean, Don't Tell Us All has the one song... I'll be you, which if anyone knows the replacements probably knows that song. The last couple of albums are just a very overproduced, you know, kind of slick in some ways. And if they'd made a lot more albums like that, maybe they wouldn't have been the replacements. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of hard. Maybe, maybe, maybe the fact that they weren't as big as they could have been led to the quality being what it was. Yeah. I don't know. All right, Michael, what's your second? Um, My next one is uh, the band, the Walkman. Who um, they've been around since two thousand or so. There's the Walkins, the Walkmen. Oh, I thought uh, it was like like Christopher Walken or something. <laughs> Sorry. Um, 
they're this they're a very interesting band where they had like this one big hit back in 2004 uh, called The Rat, which is off this album, Bows and Arrows. And um, I got a call from my friend Julie and she said, I just heard the song. And the only lyrics that I know are like, uh, can you see me shouting at my door? And I don't know what this band is. And I love this song and I need I don't know what this is. She must have heard it on the radio or she heard it uh, in a store or something. is this song that's very energetic and very aggressive and very fast and with a, a lot of energy. The problem is the rest of their music doesn't really sound like oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the singer has this very kind of languid way of singing and things are like, I have this real soft spot for like lead singers and bands that have like weird voices. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like I love uh, Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse and this Future guy, Future Islands guy, so yeah, the guy from Future Islands kind of has a strange voice, and but like, and his stuff, the way he sings is very, it drags on, and he sings like through every every syllable, and it's 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 very kind of downbeat, and I think they could like it's, I, I guess I think that their their music is great, their uh, bows and arrows was great, the one of the follow up albums Lisbon was great, but nothing quite sounded like that one single. of their stuff did I, I mean maybe it's kind of like what you're talking about Richard where like if they went in a different direction they wouldn't have been that band right so I think that this is this weird instance where they had a really big single and maybe that was just kind of like this maybe it's like a mixtape culture right where or a singles culture which kind of exists nowadays like how many times do you like I I like listening to full albums front to finish you freak like a weirdo now, yeah. but really the bands are, you know, trying to get like one hit out there and if you have the one hit, maybe they get the commercial or whatever. Not, I'm not saying all bands are like this, but right. I think it's just part of the culture now is that you're looking for the single to hit. Uh, maybe it, it used to be that way too. Like, uh-huh. you know, in the fifties and sixties, you wanted to get that single out. And then if you had an album, the album was a collection of singles. Yes. Very frequently. So. But like, I don't know. I think this is, a, a, this is a very talented band that if their sound was just more like that one single, and I guess it sounds kind of weird to say that, but right. I think they could have been huge, but it just it never quite. Why do you think, so do you think that that was like a purposeful thing that they moved away from that sound because the single was successful? Or it could it have been like they, like they had a follow up album called uh, Heaven, which was uh, very just like slow paced and downbeat. And I don't know, just it wasn't. I maybe like success does kind of trample you in your artistic endeavors. Yeah. 
Yeah, the I always think too that uh, we're hearing. I'm a big fan of Todd Rundgren, and almost all the acts that he produced, he produced some song that the act never topped that song from sales and popularity, but they never were that song either. So, Richard, what's your second? Uh, second one is Big Star. Another strange one. I've never heard of these guys. Can't tell if he's being famous. I can't tell if he's. I love Big Star. I know you do. I know you do. And I'm this. Jeff, felt- Jeff shot me a look, and like I don't know who this band is, but Jeff shot me a look like. Really? You know what I'm doing? He was waiting for you to respond, Michael, and it just An incredible, died. incredible, Sorry. Like well, a touchstone for a lot of people. Guys, Big Star. Absolutely, and I, I, you know, a band that in for the replacements had this three great, great stretch of three albums, ending with "Don't Tell," not "Don't Tell Us All," with a ending with a "Please to Meet Me." And one of the songs on there is called Alex Chilton, which yeah. was about the lead singer of Big Star. And this is kind of the band that, especially back in, say, the 70s and 80s, before there was like iTunes and Spotify, where it's, I think, a little bit, some ways demo- democratized the process of getting music out to people. It's easy now. I mean, it's... Anyone could. Be, anyone could make yeah. a crappy podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Proof positive. <laughs> Proof is in the pudding, my friends. We got pudding? <laughs> Yeah, we got some right back there. So Big Star were uh, but they, a touchdown? Or yeah, it? I mean, they were, they're kind of the example of a band that was undone by forces outside of their own control. Yeah. They were pretty much, the, I guess, the seminal power pop band, yeah. I think makes a lot of sense. Won't you let me walk you home from school? Won't you let me meet you at the pool? Maybe Friday I can get tickets for the dance. Now The, their lead singer was Alex Chilton, who back in the early, like mid '60s, was the lead singer of the Box Tops, who had hits with uh, the Letter was the big one, and also Cry Like a Baby, and he was like f- 14, I think, yeah, when those songs came out, and he had this super like deep bluesy like, Eric Burden, yeah, exactly. And he said late, years later that wasn't his voice. He was just trying to. He was from Memphis, and he was just trying to emulate what was popular at the time. So that kind of comes and goes. Several years later, he starts this band, Big Star, which is in Memphis, home of soul music, and it's trying to be this take on like British, like mm-hmm. late era British invasion rock, totally out of step with what was happening at the time. Um, they get signed by Stax Records, which was. If you guys don't know, Stax Records was like the big Memphis soul music company. They had Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Booker T and the MGs, uh, by that time, Isaac Hayes. So this really legendary soul record label. They decided they want to branch out and do rock stuff. So they signed Big Star. They put out an album called Number One Record, which is phenomenal. It is one of those. It's like one of those, you know, the people say Velvet Underground only sold 20,000 copies of their albums, but everyone who bought the album yeah. wound up starting a band. You know, if you take that lineage to like the power pop kind of mm-hmm. world in like the 80s and 90s yeah. and the whole college rock thing, like REM and bands like that, they all cite those big star albums as being these seminal, like, mm-hmm. kind of songs. If, 
if anyone knows Big Star, they probably know the theme from that 70s show, which yeah. I hate to bring up because it's not a very good show, folks. But they did the theme. So their version of their song on the street that they was on this first album was covered by Cheap Trick for the show. And so people probably know that or they might know September Girls, which was from the second album, Radio, Radio City. They both just basically the, the distribution got botched on both of them. Stax was a go, was going bankrupt when uh, number one record comes out. So people would hear it on the radio and say, I love this song. I want to go buy it. And they literally they'd go to the record stores and you just physically could not buy it. That's just what didn't exist out in, in the stores, which, you know, it's like now we look at it and go, well, you just go online. Anyone can get it mm-hmm. like that. That would never happen today. If you there's a band whose stuff you really liked. Well, there it would, would be, be a way to buy it. it and the same be, thing happened on the next album, too. Like, like their distribution got botched and they just even though people it was a critical hit, people loved it. You just couldn't buy it. Well, you know, it'd be crazy if like today, like like the number one rap artist put out like his new album only on uh, a, a listening service <laughs> that was so limited yeah, right. in distribution <laughs> that you could only get it through uh, a streaming service or <laughs> downloading. Like that would be crazy yeah. for someone to do that. Rather than take yeah, advantage I, I can't of, fathom that happening that would, today. I, you <laughs> must be mental. It would be tough to fathom you know, the, something like that. I think there are a few documentaries. Somebody? Anybody? Title? Fathom? Guys? What, 20,000 leagues Guys, to get to that joke. The uh, document, there's a documentary on Netflix about Big Star, and I've been reading this yeah. book about the, the kind of Big Star, where they came from. But also, if we discuss things, bands that could have been bigger, there's also a way that Big Star was very much supported by music critics like the Lester Bangses of the sure, world. Sure, Robert Christigal. And so guys. if you think of thinking like it's almost improbable that they were it was a great song but their niche was kind of a little bit marginal. Right. So it's almost amazing that they were as big as they were that they got that. They, had they not had I think a lot of oomph from some music critics they might not have reached some of the audience. That I they think did. it's possible. I mean I think the fact that again Alex Chilton was kind of this local name, legend yeah, yeah. in Memphis Kind of gave them some oomph. And it's, yeah. But I think it's just one of those ones where you look back on it and you go, you listen to those albums, and man, do they sound, they hold up, they sound yeah. fresh. Oh, yeah. They don't sound like, this doesn't sound like 1973. You think about mm-hmm. some of the stuff that was coming out, like the early 70s, and it just, you can see that direct through line to like all these college rock, indie rock bands in mm, the 80s. Yeah. So I know a lot of you out there like Big Star and like the replacements or maybe even some of those weirdo bands that Michael mentioned. And so get in a dialogue with us on our Facebook and on our Twitter and in Instagram. I don't know how you could do that. You could post a photo of your favorite album cover on the Instagram. And we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to hear suggestions as to what topics you'd like to hear a Mount Rushmore of. And we might even have a Mount Rushmore of awful topics that uh, users have submitted. So please keep in conversation with us. So that's our halftime. Now we're going to get back with uh, Michael's third 
Sure. No. Yeah. Michael's third choice. It's it's tough coming out of the locker room uh, when the <laughs> the deck is so stacked against me right away. You what, are you, should, what are you trying to well, say? Just here? like I'm holding hands with Richard. Under the <laughs> the table. love fest between That's these two right hand, now. Michael. That's not my hand. my hand, There's five things there. I thought that was a hand. It's medical condition. <laughs> uh, my next band uh, is Elastica. Who, Ooh, that's a good one. Um, who just really failed with the follow-up album. Their first album, yeah. titled Elastica, came out in 92. Um, was it 92? 92, 93, something like that. Right. Um, the lead singer... Justine Frischman. Yeah. Uh, she was part of Suede. Uh, you might know them in right. America as the London Suede. <laughs> right. Because uh, you wouldn't want to get confused with that famous band Suede that was already in the United States. <laughs> um, and she eventually was like, uh, she left the band or was kicked out of the band because um, I think she was dating the lead singer of Blur. Yeah, she's dating Damon Albarn for Blur, yeah. And uh, she started Elastica with three other people. And the first album was just incredible. Um, Stutter was a great song. Connection was incredible. What else? A car song. They like they had yeah. they had so many big singles um, from Con- this one connection. album. Uh, connection, yeah, yeah was connection. Like the big single, yeah. And it was like the fastest selling album since Oasis's definitely maybe, and stayed the fastest selling album for ten years after it came out. Yeah, they had such a great look and sound. And especially for the 90s, um, they had a song about Vaseline. So here's a quick mini M- Mount Rushmore of songs from the 90s. Named Vaseline? About Vaseline. <laughs> it, uh, Vaseline by Elastica. Right. Vasoline with an O by Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, she's, uh, she Don't Use Jelly by The Flaming Lips and uh, Ode to No One by The Smashing Pumpkins. All you needed to do in the 90s was write a song with the word Vaseline in it somewhere and you were good right. to go. The problem is... Their next album came out five years later. It was called The Menace. And right away, you knew something was wrong. I don't know what is it, what it is about bands who feel like they need to radically change their sound on the sophomore album or maybe a couple albums down the line. And it, and it just doesn't work. Right. Uh, the first song on it, um, Mad Dog, starts out with like these really like bad synthesized kind of computer sounds and you're like uh, this isn't the same band it's like you've been waiting for five years and this is what you get to start with And it was just like if they put something out when they were just like really hot, if they put something out a couple years later, like two years later, 94, 95, I think that they could have been a lot bigger. They should have uh, kind of carried that on. But 
I think they had some sort of legal trouble with uh, copyright infringement. I don't think that really got in the way of it, but I think that they just kind of took their time getting to their second album. And within like a year or so, they were broken up. Well, and there were a lot of, I thought about this because I was putting my list together and spoiler alert, it's a lot of white guys on this list. <laughs> and I felt bad about it. And I just kind of, but I kind of started thinking about now that you mentioned this, there were a lot of female led acts from Britain in that kind of early nineties world that probably just never really broke through in the U S that could have, you know, there's, there was Elastica. There was lush was another one. Garbage. Garbage, uh, garbage was pretty. I yeah, mean, they, they broke I, through I, and they were British. So yeah, other that, than that, you that's right. It. That's right. I forgot. Um, but like Mazzy star, the Sundays, there's that kind of like window where there are a lot of great female acts coming out of England. And it just, for whatever reason, it just didn't, didn't translate to the U S and there's also that pocket of just like, the pre-grunge stuff that was coming out of England, that kind of like, not quite the, not quite the Brit pop, but just like, right. like almost. It was post-punk. Yeah. You said, you mentioned suede and like the wonder stuff. Mm-hmm. There's just like this whole group of, you know, my bloody Valentine. Right. This whole, this whole group of like, just when they were starting to get to be big, like grunge came and just like, was this wrecking, fucked everything was up. this wrecking ball that like, Kind of you had to be you had to be identified as it felt like it, at least growing up here in like L.A. and listening to K-Rock like it was everyone. Everything was alternative slash grunge like you couldn't you couldn't kind of separate the two. And it took I don't know. I don't know what kind of killed it was. It was well, you had Marilyn this- Manson or something came along and this big, loud, aggressive sound kind of came in. Oh, and, corn. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Well, growing up, you know, growing up in L.A., but being in L.A. at that time, it was like you'd. Like the almost the acoustic Christmases, you would have like these grunge bands and then the one band from England that was there for your like weirdo British loving friends. It'd be like, I know my wife went to go see Wonder Stuff with us. Was there one year or it'd be like suede mm-hmm. or some band like that. There's like, hey, here's the band you hear on Rodney on the Rock. <laughs> but enough of that. God here's Stone it. Temple Pilots. I, I went to a, an almost acoustic Christmas and Sonic Youth was playing uh, one they did not play it acoustically. They played. No. They played two songs. They played uh, "Bull in the Heather," which was the big hit at the time, and then they played like a twelve-minute or fourteen-minute version of a song that everyone just kind of zoned out to. No bathroom one, break time. Basically, it was it was like the the match before the finale in a wrestling event. So, um, Sarah, went, the one that Sarah went to go see, one of the, this was back when you would get three songs. You wouldn't get like a time limit. You would just get three songs. Yeah. So one of the one of the <laughs> bands was They Might Be Giants. Sure. So there are three songs. Probably they're on stage for like Half eight minutes. Minute. Oh, really? <laughs> because it was like one of them was like it was like Istanbul, Probably not Bert, Constantinople, Bird House in Your soul. soul. And then uh, The Sun is a Massive Incandescent uh-huh. Gas. Uh, next act, or it might have been not, not I don't know if it's exactly the next act, but it's pretty close to it. It was Tony Bennett. <laughs> that was weird. So his three songs were like 40 minutes because each <laughs> song was like. 10 minutes long with like a scat break and like, you know, nice drum story. solo and, and so story was, in between. I was dating Angie Dickinson when I beautiful girl, beautiful girl, <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. That was weird though. The whole Tony Bennett, like being successful, like being hit for like five minutes. God, the mid nineties were weird. All right, Richard, what's your third? I'm going to piggyback a little bit on what, what we were talking about with bands that were just sort of out of step with what became popular in the nineties. 
and where grunge kind of just ruined them. And that kind of made it so they just killed whatever momentum they had. And mine is Jellyfish. Which were this kind of early 90s, kind of again in the power pop sort of vein, but very Beatles inspired. Yeah. Kind of like that Paisley. Yeah. Which was almost Prince adjacent, but not. It was more power pop. Like It was like like power pop plus Prince from like uh, Raspberry Raspberry Beret. Beret, Yeah. yeah. yeah, Kind of kind of but white. Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, just like this, you know, lead singer wore a freaking like a cat in the hat. Yeah, that, that type of band. Yeah, if you <laughs> if could you look were, for nobody. If you're XTC <laughs> right. fan and Dukes of Stratosphere was your jam, then Jellyfish could have been in that that realm. That yeah, yeah, I mean they're very similar to that, but they just had these really great, intricate, intricately crafted yeah. pop songs. I think their look kind of held them back because they look like these like hippies crossed with glam rock and it's just hard to take them seriously. Again, you're never going to take a guy in a cat in a hat, yeah. hat seriously, yeah. whether it's Mike Myers or or Roger Manning Jr. Roger Manning Jr., lead singer of Jellyfish, played drums, but played a stand-up kit. Oh, wow. Well, it's ergonomically better for you. <laughs> right. He was like really at the, really at the. Uh, he had such a bad posture. He had just a drum set just raised up every 15 well, minutes. Well, I think like Trip Shakespeare was kind of in that world yeah. a little bit. So. Yeah. I mean, there. Were, I mean, honestly, I could have just said power pop band. Yeah. Insert fill in the blank. Yeah. Because that's like the classic, like every power pop band critics, the certain like weird, like cross culture. Right. Because well, why weren't they, why weren't the raspberries bigger? Mm-hmm. Why weren't. God, why didn't the next second album? Mm-hmm. Well, what did you? Because well, they were assholes. But what distinguish them for you. What, uh, what, what jellyfish? What got them on the list? Here? Oh, jellyfish! I, like I said, that that first album. Well, first of well, all, both albums. I only really, I guess, only had two albums, and they were just so well crafted. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they they kind of cut through what was out there, and it felt like okay, this is a band that's really gonna. They've got a lot of great, talented musicians in it. Like everyone could write. Jason Faulkner was in the band yeah. who wound up doing a lot of production, a lot of good solo albums and stuff. Andy Strummer. Roger all these, Manning. Roger Manning. With, with Beck, too. Yeah, he did a lot of, he's yeah. like, does a lot of stuff with Beck. Mm-hmm. So you've got these great musicians in it. And, you know, this is like, it's a 91, 92. They start to get some, some, some publicity, mm-hmm. you know, some songs getting played on K-Rock, what have you. And then here comes grunge. Yeah. Here comes Nirvana. And we talk about grunge as kind of like blowing hair metal out of the water and kind of like the whole Guns N' Roses thing and kind of resetting that. 
God, it also screwed up a lot of bands that were alternative that yeah. just weren't. We're doing something different than mm-hmm. that. I also think if you weren't grunge, you had to be funny. And a band like Cake or Ben Folds were more firmly entrenched in ironic or rock. like Bare Naked Ladies, Bare Naked Ladies or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Like if you had like a shtick, for yeah. lack of a better term, you can kind of get away away with it. And their shtick were being kind of like guys in cat hats. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. just not going to fly. It was like because it was so earnest. Yeah. And like monochromatic and dark and mm-hmm. like moody and they were all about you know like these like almost like 60s pastiche sort of you know big bold colors yeah. and and dressing kind of silly yeah. and it just was so out of step all right michael so this is your fourth i guess i'm just going to call this your hail mary because richard and i are so in bed on this it's kind of gross i mean you really need to get our room our own podcast i know so i i really it better be something awesome i really i really should say something like ridiculous like spinal tap like if yeah. spinal tap had only uh maybe gotten a different album cover yeah or maybe if uh or jimmy hendrix why didn't he get yeah. <laughs> maybe if they had better band management they could have been such a huge band right uh, Bigger, bigger stone hinges. Yeah. Um, honestly, uh, we're recording this right around when Coachella is happening yeah. here in L.A. As you can tell, because I've got my Indian headdress on. That's right. I'm wearing my giant um, cat in the hat hat right now. But like there's a band that um, this isn't my band, but there's a band that has been broken up for four or five years uh, called LCD Sound System, who came back and everyone's kind of freaking out about them. They've only been gone for four or five yeah. years. Uh, which made me kind of think of the band that's perpetually on the verge of like everyone wants to come back, which is the Smiths. Oh, and it's never going to happen. Heard of them. Never heard of yeah. them. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fun. Like uh, the Smiths is probably one of my favorite bands, if not my favorite band, maybe one or two. And they were only together for a handful of years. Yeah. They were together from like 82 or 83 to 87. Yeah. They put out four great albums. They had like a compilation album, but they put out so much good music in such a condensed span of time mm-hmm. that you wonder what could they have done if Johnny Marr and Morrissey just kind of yeah. remained friends or if like there wasn't a rumor that Morrissey wanted to break up the band or that blamed Johnny Marr for things. I mean, because Johnny Marr was the one that broke it up. Yeah. He didn't want, he didn't like some of the direction that Morrissey wanted to go. And it's funny because if you listen to like the first Morrissey album afterwards, kind of sounds like a Smith's album. Yeah. Like, um, Suedehead could be a Smith song. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know if it's just, this, this is just one of those dream things. Like, what would they have been if they really broke into. America. I don't know. Maybe my I, looking over my list, I, it's three English acts and I keep maybe it's just part of it is just being here in America. But like they had such an influence on the rest of music, mm-hmm. uh, pop or just in, in general, like the Smiths were huge. Maybe not so much Morrissey himself as a solo artist. I think he's ultimately was bigger than the band as just a personality. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about K-Rock, this radio station in Los Angeles just because it was so influential in the 80s and 90s, not just here, but just nationally. Like if, if stuff got played on K-Rock, 
there was a good chance it was getting picked up on other radio stations. And Offspring was like one of those. Yeah, it was one of those Offspring was one of those huge bands from '94. Yeah, that just they played on Kevin and Bean, and then it were or, or like Drama Rama, like mm-hmm. like Rodney discovered Drama Rama, and the Bangles were another one. But they were kind of there's this like like window in the mid '80s of like they got very British centric, and again maybe Rodney was really involved with this. Yeah, but they're like like Depeche Mode. They pushed the hell out of Depeche Mode, and then they saw. I mean, Depeche Mode sold out the Rose Bowl. Yeah, and The Cure was another one. And yeah. The Cure became huge. Yeah, and then the Smiths were the third one. And for whatever reason, the Smiths just never broke in the U.S. the way those two bands did. And since you're the big Smiths fan here, do you have any theories about that? Well, I think part of it was I think Johnny Marr wanted to go off and do different things. He went on to do he went on to record with the the I think that was his his next band that he was a part of. He went and started his own band, uh, Johnny Marr and the Healers. Um, I mean, later on, he went and played with Modest Mouse for yeah. one of their albums. So I think that he had more of an eclectic taste in music. But um, I guess was there something about them in the '80s when they were still, like when they were still making music that didn't lead them to break through in the U.S. the way so those other two bands I mentioned? I did? always feel like success was independent of what they what was going to happen with them. So in a way, is it shouldn't. Could, should have been bigger or should have found a way to stay together. I yeah. guess so. And yeah. I think I bet that happens with a lot of bands is that like if the relationship between the bandmates yeah. remains remained better or I, we talked about this at the beginning. It's like, where do you think like, you know, we're hypothesizing things where what makes these two band or you know, what makes a band great is probably the internal dialogue or the friction within the band that pushes them to make yeah. music. I mean, I would also talk say about the Beatles in that way yeah. where, you know, that that's the ultimate in if they stayed together, how big would they have gotten? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one thing I think about the Smiths is musically, they could have been bigger from an impact standpoint. I don't know how they could have been bigger because if you, drive south on the five you'll go past a billboard that has a smith's tribute act every weekend and you sure see, yeah you see kids walking outside of a high school who are who are a smith's tribute act it feels like it culturally they especially here in la especially if you drive past so. a latino like yeah. like oriented which is like this own weird like yeah. thing i guess right? i guess i i had a bit of a, a limited uh, vision on no no I just, think, I, well, I, but i think it's totally legit like i said like those depeche mode the cure Sold platinum albums, like you said, sold out the Rose Bowl, are still like these. But the Smiths, like, and I think part of it is just Morrissey. Like, he's just a prickly kind of ass. Yeah, I also think. And I hated, I, just real quick, I, in high school, I hated the Smiths and <laughs> hated Morrissey. And partially that was because the kids who liked the Smiths and Morrissey were obsessive about it yeah. to the point of being just. Annoying. It was and, an identity, not a music. Yeah, and it just really rubbed me the wrong way. And part of it is just that's when Morrissey was pushing his "oh, I'm asexual," and you know the whole like kind of his just persona just made me so like allergic to wanting to like him. Shut 
And now it's like, you know, I'm 40 and I, I, I listen to those albums and they're great. And partially part of me feels like I missed something by not being mm-hmm. into them more. The part of me is like, nah, I didn't miss much. I, I, Morrissey's still an asshole. <laughs> I think he's I think he's always remained a, a prickly pair. Yeah. Um, but I think that's part of it. I, I, I think it's I think it's who he is, but it's also part of his persona. And I don't mm-hmm. think that you can really um, divorce the two at this point. But it's yeah. weird because I don't real quick. And I know we want to move on, Jeff, but I don't think of them as being. a. Sometimes you think of them, I guess, as a band that wasn't interested in doing everything it took to become famous. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you and I have shared the, I've shared these links with you before. I know there's one link. I think maybe you shared one with me of them, like on a kid's TV show in England, yeah. answering like questions from kids about being musicians. Yeah. And there's another one where he's, there's like, it was like a really long running, basically like a, like a Sunday morning panel type show, but on music. And it's him and like Robert Smith from the cure talking about like the latest Sig Sig Sputnik album or whatever yeah. the hell it is. I, I, I've just one final thing. Um, recently there was like uh, a Smith's Twitter or a Smith's like fan Instagram or something that for some reason Morrissey took up against and, you know, wrote a letter out to his fans on his, his website saying, um, and this kind of goes back to this Coachella thing and LCD sound system, but like writing, he said like, I don't think anyone wants to see the Smiths back together. Which is like so crazy and out of touch with the people that he like is connected to in his yeah. music. And uh, yeah. maybe it was just never meant to be in that sense. <laughs> Richard, it's time for your last entry. Uh, last one is the Sir Douglas Quintet, uh, led by Doug Som, who was, again, one of those groups that was probably a little ahead of its time. And somebody who, kind of like the Kinks, a band that kept evolving their sound, I think, to the point where it was tough for fans to really pin them down uh, started out their Texas based band San Antonio but really I guess most associated with like Austin and they're this mix of like rock and blues and country and a lot of like kind of Tano music Mex kind of influences um, start out in the 60s kind of took the name to try and confuse people to think they were a British invasion band oh. uh, would even sometimes wear like mop top wigs on stage which <laughs> seeing as though like a couple of the members of the band were like Hispanic probably wasn't going <laughs> to fool anybody uh, had a hit in the 60s with a song called uh, She's a Mover um, very kind of like kinks driven but like this with this like like I said this Tex-Mex organ on top mm-hmm. of it super unique it's a drug bust in Corpus Christi they wind up have they wind up winds up leading to them splitting up Doug Som goes over to San Francisco kind of falls in with the hippie mute movement gets the band started again with mainly new members but also Augie Myers who is the organ player 
and the new sand, they kind of get deeper into the Tex-Mex kind of feel of it. And also kind of incorporating some of these, like, like I said, San Francisco. Other big hit was a song called Mendocino. I love you so. Which I will post on the show notes. I will post a link to a a video of this from the uh, the Playboy After Hours mm-hmm. show, where it's them play. There's like a little short interview with Hugh Hefner and Michael Caine and Doug Sum, <laughs> but Doug Sum talking about being playing in England and Michael Caine being basically being Michael Caine. And then they play the song, and within and I know it's like within the context of the show is like a big party type of scene vibe, mm-hmm. and they wanted to get people up and dance, but they play the song and within 20 seconds, everyone's just like on the dance floor going nuts. It's an incredible song, incredible, like kind of like just great groove yeah. vibe. And then just one of those, he decides to kind of go a different direction, get more, get more blues into his sound, makes an, goes, makes a solo album called, called Doug Sam and his band in 72. Jerry Wexler is like from Atlantic records, mm-hmm. totally champions it. Uh, the side band includes Bob Dylan, Dr. John, Fathead Newman, Flacco Jimenez. It's like just, Jeez. yeah, super group of 70s like musicians. And it kind of stiffs. And it's just like one of those things where like you have all this momentum and then you make this one thing. And years later, people look back on it as this great album. But at the time, it was kind of like this moderate success, but wasn't as big as you would have thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just stalled his career out for about a decade. Winds up later part of his career. Starts a band called uh, Texas Tornadoes. Oh, yeah. They, they had several big mm-hmm. like, kind of country hits and kind of mm-hmm. crossover stuff. So kind of wound up having a happy ending with in terms of commercially. But just this incredibly, I mean, you look at bands like Los Lobos, you know, any of these bands that were kind of incorporating rock and Latino elements and all these different disparate sort of Southwest, Tex-Mex, yeah. Hispanic kind of like stuff uh-huh. and that's kind of what you you know that whole Austin scene where it's just like you just yeah. bring all this stuff this in stew of influences yeah and then sometimes you do that when you're so diverse in the type of music that you make it's hard for you to develop an audience because with every album if you're taking a 90 mm-hmm. degree turn it's just it's yeah. hard to get that audience to follow you yeah uh, yeah I think bands kind of uh, almost like like acting careers you play a hero and then if you play a villain, you lose track of your audience who wanted to see you in that vein. So uh, we've each registered our four choices, and uh, now I'm going to recap. But before I do, I'm going to say my choice. And Mike, Win- Mike, Mikey Winfield brought up... Again with the Mikey. I can't believe it. Mikey Twice Winfield. in a row. Uh, my brother's name Mike. It's a term of endearment. Uh, Michael Winfield brought up the kind of fire and ice relationship between the two principal uh collaborators and the Smiths. And for me, the band that I kind of thought should be bigger uh, is Sunvolt. 
And for fans Ooh, of Uncle Tupelo, one. you knew that Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy. Well, they're no avalanches, Michael. No, no. <laughs> yeah, shame. Jay and Jeff were these two kind of bitter rivals who happened to be in a band together and did some incredible music as Uncle Tupelo and created a genre of alt country, but then really couldn't get along. And if you hear uh, Jeff talk about it, it's just uh, he wasn't, his contributions weren't recognized enough and he was kind of treated as a second class citizen. Um, but then they broke up, and I guess they had uh, a record contract as Uncle Tupelo that then the label decided to split those two in each, and uh, their new incarnations, Sunvolt and um, Wilco, each got that same record contract. Well, Jeff Tweedy has had an incredible career with Wilco, and one in which he has changed a bunch mm. for the like or dislike of the fans who've wanted to hear that alt-country sound or the power-pop sound or whatever. Like, do you like Star Wars, Michael? I do like Star the Wars. The album. Wait, what's that? Their latest <laughs> what album. Is it called? Wilco's oh. latest album is a thing called Star Wars. I don't even understand what it means. Um but, you know, there was a uh, track on that that I was a fan of, but the rest I didn't like. Is it. calling it Star Wars the album like tagging a hot topic on Twitter, which, yeah. is, which is like, just I'm trying to promote uh, this one crappy tweet. I'm going yeah. to tag it as uh, yeah. this is just spamming GOP debate. Yeah. <laughs> just spamming it. With, also, is that does that is there no more like copyright infringement? I, it's Star I, Wars. The album. The album. Um, so, yeah, if I ever want a poetry slam to be attended by people, I'll put Star Wars <laughs> in the hashtag. But why did Jeff, Tweedy, and Wilco have so much success? And then they do have a fan base, follows them from one change to another. But Jay Farrar kind of stuck with the alt-country thing and then kind of laid some Americana Roots stuff on it, like Johnny Cash was doing, and really lost a lot of the fan base, I think. So I guess my thing was... Uh, Sunvolt, why weren't they bigger? Hmm. You can also say that with a lot of those no depression bands, though, like Jayhawks. Yeah, some extent, Ryan Adams. Yeah, it's because they're they're playing in a in a, a Julian Welch. Yeah, they're thing, pl- yeah. maybe they ain't that bigger because it's it just wasn't a very popular um, a musical genre. Okay, so I have evaluated. Let's recap the uh, bands that should have been bigger. Michael's choices were the Kinks, the Walkmen, Alaska. Michael had a sub Rushmore. With Vaseline songs, that it was very entertaining. Hey, big topic in the 90s. Big topic. Uh, and the Smiths, uh, Richards, were the replacements. Big star, Sir Douglas Quintet, Jellyfish. And I got to say, this time around, he, he, he stole my heart from the very beginning with his list of bands. Uh, Richard takes the day on his Mount Rushmore bands that should have been bigger. 50-50 booking again, Michael. Yeah. Well, it happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, that's all the time we have. It's not. We got plenty of time, but that's all the time we'll give you. I got to go get lunch, guys. So it really is all the time we have. 